it's the TFC Audio Project. Hey, what's up, tribe? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the TFC Audio Project Down Under. In this episode, I chat to Tom Williams from Breath Performance Physio. We delve into the physiology of breathing, what it means to breathe well, and why that is so critically important for your health and performance, as well as some simple tips to get you started improving your breathing at home. This week's episode is brought to you by TFC Events. Our Aussie workshop tour has officially kicked off. We had a great first session in Brisbane at Perform360. We have another one coming up this weekend at the Kaizen Movement on the Sunshine Coast. And at the end of the month, we hit the road for Sydney and Melbourne. Check out our website for all the details and to book in. We'll have a link in the show notes as well. And get in touch if you'd like to host or attend one in your city. Alright, so you're back with James and not Mac this time. This week we've got a special guest, which is Tom from Breath Performance Physio. Um, so mate, you're the first ever guest on our podcast. I feel honoured. You f- should feel very special. <laughs> um, and yeah, we, we're looking forward to getting more and more guests on. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to, to have a chat with you all about breath. Um, so you and I actually met through Instagram, really, hey? It was actually Instagram. There yeah. was, it was just why I think... I might have followed the Foot Collective and then just said, hey, oh, the Foot Collective dude in Australia lives in Brisbane. Might just add him and have a bit of a chat. And when was that? Two years ago? Uh, Started last year. Maybe started 2020-ish. Yeah. Yeah. You you got a beam and a hacky at the time, I think, as well. Yeah, I looked at, yeah, I did the online course from the Foot Collective. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I think you asked me how how it went. It's like, I got it done pretty quick. And then I got the green beam, got a hacky and... The rest is history. <laughs> yes, and now uh, Tom's been on the Hackmanton Court as well, and we've had a lot up. of good chats. And um, yeah, like I, I've been aware of breath uh, as a, an important part of health and performance for the last, well, I guess since I was in uni, um, and I've read some books and done some courses and, and sort of really enjoyed learning about it but i don't think i've quite delved into the rabbit hole quite as far as you have so it's a rabbit hole indeed it's, it's, a it's quite hole. the rabbit hole um i've delved a bit but i'm very looking i'm very much looking forward to picking your brains about it and getting into some more depth today um it may be that we have to do a couple of podcasts on breath because i know it is such a, a deep rabbit hole but um at least we can get the good stuff a lot of the main basic stuff done today and then we can pot- potentially revisit as well um before we do get stuck into all that why don't you just give a bit of background about yourself um you know who you are where you come from um uh, doesn't have to be your life story but also just a bit about how you got into all the breath stuff and why you think it's so important mm, easy well i mean the life story um northern new south wales so i grew up on a cattle farm but 15 minutes from the beach so coastal country pretty good upbringing from what everyone in brisbane keeps telling me so which was pretty nice um how I sort of got to this point, I mean, I'm physio by trade. was my fifth year of doing physio, and I did a uh, Bachelor of Exercise Science. So I did that, and I'm a level one strength coach. Not that I specifically use that much, but it's definitely helped me along the pathway uh, to get to this point. And then within physio, sort of like yourself, you sort of have a lot of option as to what to do, and musculoskeletal was always my little love and little route as I kept learning because it meant that I could help rehabilitate myself from being injured, which was one of the first things. And then obviously had a a big love of helping people. So it just seemed to make sense to help people go into the world of sport and help that. So I did that for a few years. And then when I got to, or how I got to the breath thing is actually, again, I got injured. I got knee in the coccyx playing a game of footy. uh, So a game of soccer. And had probably what, I'm going to say two, three, probably like three or four physios have a look trying to help me with the pain that I sort of sustained. I had it for a good 
six months and the physio actually made the most impact one of the exercises he gave me was breathing mm-hmm. and i was like uh, wtf what are you talking about um but within the session it actually there's four specific exercises i remember them very clearly and walking away going that's the first time in six months i had no pain and i was very curious at that point to understand why and how and then i would imagine that was probably what three years ago now mm-hmm. about three years ago and Ever since then, I've just been fascinated by how it, and why breath was one of the exercises he gave me. And as a, you dive down the rabbit hole of different courses and stuff, whether it be like the foot collective stuff or whether it be movement stuff or my lovely original strength shirt, there seems to be pretty big commonality across all mm. fields, whether it be yoga, sports, whatever, that breathing is very fundamental. And yeah, look for the commonalities and trends within physio and you sort of keep coming back to breathing is vitally important. Absolutely. And it's actually a little bit strange that that isn't more well-known, really. Like, when if you think about mm. breathing, it's the only sort of movement that you can't survive or the only, like, thing that you can't survive with past a few minutes or depending mm. on how you train, obviously. Yeah, man, I mean, but, it's quite fascinating, right? Like, it's, it's the simplest thing, too. It is quite yeah. literally the first thing you do when you're born and it will be the last thing you do when you die. And yet, we don't put a lot of attention to it because it's automatic and we have yeah. deeper brain centers in there which is something we kind of quickly delved into on the uh, the blog yep so yep. which would be cool yep so yeah there's also a blog tom's written up for us on the website if you're keen to check that out um yeah but 100 percent, it's such a it's an automatic thing and when you start telling people like oh there's you shouldn't be doing this type of breathing or you should be doing this type of breathing like what do you mean it's just breathing like can't i just breathe and um yeah like the same reaction you had of like well, why is this physio doing breath stuff for me when, you know, my knee hurts or my hip hurts or whatever is, is a, a very common thing. And, but then once you, you don't even have to go too, too many layers deep to help someone understand why that's important in terms of mechanics and in terms of physiology in general. No, no, honestly, I think that, that question pops up still. I mean, I think I would have to probably teach breathing to at least 85, 90% of the people that I do see in clinic now whether that's for any particular issue or not is sort of regardless it's just more so about what it does and we'll delve into that a little bit more but what you find is if you understand the very basics and you can then relay it with confidence once people get past them what's going on because they're so far this way and thinking it's not going to do anything because it is a bit it's it's different it's odd to what people have historically thought physio would be I think the success just makes it more worthwhile because then they see the reaction, they move better, they have less pain and they go, oh, so all I had to do was breathe differently. And it's like, well, that's not quite the thing, but they really get the buy-in straight away because once you can really explain it to people after you understand it, the world's your oyster with what you can do with it. Yeah, for sure. And it, it's one of those things similar to feet, actually. And I think we've mm. we've gotten on this concept pretty pretty deep before mm. but it's foundational right like mm. w- once you explain to someone look you have to breathe to survive and your breathing matters for every level of efficiency basically in terms of yeah like we said biomechanics or physiological efic- efficiency um and the same with feet like anything that you do on your feet obviously your feet are going to be involved and if you've got dysfunctional feet then that's going to affect every other aspect of that movement pattern and of the the load that's generated on your body and so yeah, once sort of people understand those foundational concepts, then it's kind of obvious that regardless of what you're coming in for or regardless of what kind of symptom or condition you're experiencing, then you should probably be looking at breathing, looking at feet, looking at, you know, breath obviously also relates to core 
um, and obviously looking at load management in general, but it's these, these sort of yeah, real basics that should just be applied to every human regardless mm. of regardless of what condition or regardless of whether they're even experiencing any symptoms. It's just something that every human should be undertaking as basic maintenance. 100%. And I think if you really try to nut out a bit of a schema, because you can never have a recipe for all people. I don't think that's possible. I think that's almost... That's that's treading the wrong pathway. But if you really look at the way that physio is now, and like in pretty much all rehab, to be honest, you have pain science on one side and then you have the load management or biomechanics people sort of on the other and most people now are coming to understand that is a mixture of both it's not one or the other it's used both of them and they're always going to be the underlying ways of looking at things load is very important as is understanding the the pain stuff now it's more just really psychology in your nervous system and the Mm -hmm. more that you understand that the more you can build on the foundational things like i think that's why you and i get along really well is we believe the same sort of concepts of like if your feet or your hands are on the ground, whichever one's on the ground, they're, they're the foundation. And yeah. if they're not doing the things that they should, somewhere up the chain will have to compensate. Now, it's not good. It's not a good or a bad thing. It's just a thing. Yeah. But if we're looking to make someone more efficient or help them offload the load, it's good to know that. And then it's same with your breathing. If we know that that's going to affect how, you know, your core, which is a word I never really use because it still has no proper definition. So mm. I just try to avoid it as possible. <laughs> if that's working more efficiently, then you move more efficiently. Yeah. And then... The, the caveat, the other part is the eyes and the vestibular system. Yeah. Like you look at those three sort of key components and then you can pretty much help anyone with any issue yeah. that is particularly as long as it's not some real disease state, like say COPD, for example, or emphysema, or if we go more into say neurological disorders, which there you can definitely help with. It's just a bit more challenging. But if you're a general pop person, you hit those foundational things. Well, it's huge difference real fast. Make a huge, huge mm. difference. And they're simple changes, not necessarily, you know, quote unquote easy in, in every way, but they're simple changes and they can make much more difference than a lot of these sort of more specific isolated exercises that a lot of people go about doing, mm. um, you know, whether it's been prescribed or not or whatever they've Googled. But a lot of people will find like, what? I only just pl- like fix my breathing and my feet and, you know, my, my hip stability and suddenly, life's huge. My, my life, my performance is going up. My, um, you know, my pain is going down, or I just feel a lot more confident on the sport field, or whatever. I think that that third point's the biggest one. It's the confidence that comes with it, and yeah. we can touch on it later. But once you have somebody breathing in a way that allows their nervous system to feel good, they feel better, like almost yeah. all the time. And it's not because, like, sometimes they go, "What did you? Are you a wizard?" Like they, I've had that said so many times. No, no, it's just physiology. Your, your body is the wizard. Yeah, like honestly, that thing is very powerful. It's like you just look at biological evolution. It's like, man, whoever, if someone did create us, far smarter than I'm ever going to be. But like, <laughs> we are an incredible mm. machine, you know, quote unquote machine. We're not quite machines, but yeah. we're an incredible organism. Sentient beings is what we're aiming to be. And um, yeah, we had this chat the other day on our podcast about balance when we were talking about how the vestibular system and the visual system and the somatosensory system all combine to give you this accurate, constantly updating mm. picture of where your head and body is at relative to gravity and relative to the environment. And, and all this stuff is just happening under the hood um, you know, as part of the autonomic nervous system, which is all subconscious. And um, breathing is that interesting... I guess part of uh, interesting activity that is kind of runs that line between the autonomic and the um, voluntary nervous system essentially. Mm. Hey, yeah, it's like the thing that you sort of yes, you can do it automatically, 
but it's a matter of like if it's automatic should we talk about it well you know my answer is going to be yes and mm. there's reasons for that but also it's something that can be trained and mm. if it can be trained it means it can be improved which has been proven in practical study like practicality easy and then scientific studies like the we're living in a really good time with all this now that the science is backing up things that have been known for like literally no less than like 3,000 years yeah and it's like okay you don't have to come across as some mystic or some person out so far like left per se it's like okay a lot of what they were saying is very true it's just now science starts to believe it because we're, we've caught up and we're finding that more and more with all kinds of ancient practices and ancient wisdom and ancient medicine uh, that when the, yeah, the more you study into the granul- granularity of, of like sort of Western science, the more it starts to look like those ancient principles. So yeah. it's, it's very interesting. Um, but yeah, so that I think something that was so fascinating to me when I first started getting into um, like the Wim Hof method. And again, it's not he didn't create that. He makes no claims that he created no. it. It's been around for thousands of years. He's just packaged it into his own method and done a really great job of it. And obviously taken it to a very extreme level when it comes to cold exposure. For, for those of you who, don't, who aren't aware of Wim Hof, he's a, a Dutch guy who uh, has broken a, many world records in terms plus. of cold therapies. Huge. He's done a marathon barefoot in shorts in the snow um, and he's done, uh, he like climbs, was it Mount Kilimanjaro? He climbs very high cold mountains in with, shorts. With people, mind you, feet. who have only done his practices for a short time to prove yeah. that most people are much more resilient than he can and one of the people that helped try to build that notoriety was Scott Carney who wrote, yeah. he's written, written two books and one of them was specifically on his experience uh, with Wim going up there with out a shirt and... Mm. The mental sort of fatigue that comes with it, but then the almost exhilaration of "Wow, look what I just did!" Yeah, and and that's like that's what I've loved about Wim Hof per se as a person is he doesn't make any claim to have created any of it. Like he knows, that, like particularly his stuff comes from like the Tibetan monks and, mm. and like that ancient sort of stuff. And he's just like, I'm just doing it because it's good. And if you read into it, which is it's quite a fascinating story, his book is quite fascinating. Mm. The, like he's been through a lot of trauma in his life to get to where he is, and he sort of epitomizes in a lot of ways, how powerful the human organism can be. Yeah. If it's cultivated in the right direction and there's a very big internal driver because he's done a lot of hard work to get there. And, and similar to like a lot of people, his son's helped him really create that whole package. But Yeah. And what I also love about Vim is that he's really taken it to the scientific world now and, mm. and like he's he's got such a loud voice in that area and and he's kind of forcing people to listen to what he's got to say by doing these crazy feats of of um endurance and you know cold exposure and these mm. kinds of things and so what i found really interesting was that you know the traditional understanding of the nervous system is that it is broken up into that voluntary and involuntary system and that we don't we can't have conscious control over the autonomic nervous system which is the involuntary system that's all of the subconscious processes that your brain is constantly doing um to keep you alive and and breathing's part of that but what vim had basically he's sort of forced them to change the textbooks because now he's showing yes i can control my autonomic nervous system through breathing and meditation and so there is some level of conscious control and it's 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 the breath that ties those two um, parts of the nervous system together essentially yeah and one of the like the the cool part to what Wim does besides just that is it just it challenges research in western medicine as, an, as a whole because it starts to look at people not as numbers or patients now like even in my clinic as physio I call everyone a client I try not to use the word patient because no one 
needs to necessarily always be relying upon a doctor or a nurse or someone else. They have such internal power that it's just often untapped now. Again, due to society, due to the way we live, there's a lot of factors in that stuff you've even spoken about on your podcasts. But mm-hmm. when you give someone that confidence back, which is what Wim does for people, and then he goes and he challenges, like you said, the, the Western medical field, all right, I'm going to do this. And I want you to prove to me like why it's not working. And pretty much he hasn't lost that bet. Yeah. Like he hasn't lost yet. And the reason is, again, it's not mystical. It's just physiology. And he's just found an intuitive way into tapping in. And again, like people are more intuitive to certain things than others. It's the same way. Like you, you and I could walk down the street and we might look at someone and interpret them differently. One of us might be right. One of us might not be so right because I have a different level of intuition. You doesn't mean that, you know, you're a nutcase or I'm a nutcase. It's just, we're different. Wim just was intuitively drawn to the cold and Mm. found this thing and kept going down the pathway and down the pathway. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating. And I love watching it and I love to think what science and the healthcare system could look like in, look, I'm optimistic, but I'll say like 15, 20 years. I don't think the next decade is going to change too much, but the amount of money that gets put into healthcare might actually end up being less, hopefully, because people are just being generally better. Yeah. And that's like the long-term goal of everything, right? You want people to live happy lives, particularly as everything becomes a bit more automated and there's the talk of like robotics coming in and doing less and people have less jobs. If everyone's happier then, then it wouldn't matter. And a huge part of that is is taking more control of our own physiology, isn't it? Because mm. the traditional narrative, again, in, in Western medicine has been for the you know past while that, you know, genes are the main factor and, you know, your genetics is how you get these conditions and, and yeah, maybe food and stuff makes a bit of a difference, but um, what's coming out a lot more lately is the concept of epigenetics and, mm. and how we actually do have a lot more control over our biology than we've previously thought through things like breathing and, you know, working on your beliefs and movement and food and sleep and all of these pillars Mm. of health that people are, I guess, through the power of the internet, which is obviously how we connected, but Mm. people are starting to listen to that new narrative of actually you do have more control and these are the different things that you can control and so get stuck into those and and, um, people are finding huge, huge differences in in all of that. And so that's why I guess I love any kind, any, you know, that's the big message of the Foot Collective is take more control of your health starting at your feet. You can, you can have so much more power over your foot health than these, I guess the, mainstream shoes and general podiatry views would would tell you and the same with breath and it's the same with yeah everything i mean i I don't need to tell you how innovative the foot is you very well know (laughs) how innovative the foot is and like all you have to go is look at it logically and go if there is that big of an innovation in the foot and we know through your somatosensory cortex how much your foot hand and like your feet your hands and your face sort of take up that space it's like anything that affects those things is going to have a change at that really like cortical level. If your feet work well, then something else is going to change somewhere down the pathway. Yeah. And like spinning that back to what you're saying about meditation again, like meditation has now been studied, not no countless number of times to see over the course of the long term, if you keep practicing it, what it does, it changes your brainwaves yeah. and it makes you change who you are. And like, and that's going to go for anything. It doesn't really matter. It's just they, they needed something to prove that meditation was worthwhile. And it's like, it just depends on how you do it. But if you can, in the long term, put yourself in a better state, then all of a sudden you're going to feel better. 
yeah. and you're, and you're going to react to things differently. Your body internally is going to be less stressed and you, you can come up with all sorts of metrics like heart rate variability, resting heart rate. You can look at grip strength. You can look at all sorts of stuff. You go, is this working? Now we know it does. And yeah. it, the, the science just backs it up. It's just now kind of what you and I are doing is a part of like the global lot of everyone else that we know is doing it and trying to make it more accessible to people. Yeah. Instead of it being like, crap, where do I start? It's okay. How about we help guide you on that and then you do whatever you want? Well, while we're on that topic, actually, so the breath has obviously been a, a big focus for meditation and it is a lot, in a lot of meditative practices, um, especially mindfulness meditation is literally just focusing, not necessarily even trying to change your breath pattern, but just focusing in, tuning in on actually how you are breathing as, as the first point of call, mm. um, as an awareness thing. And... You know, let's just chat a little bit about breath and meditation and what you've experienced uh, maybe in your own mm. life or in practice or what you'd recommend as, as a good place to start for a breathing meditation. I think exactly what you said is probably the best place to start. I mean, like the two clear examples or resources that come to mind are Dan Brule's book, Just Breathe, and then the Headspace app, which is free to download. You can, everyone can try it. The first like things on the journey are just awareness. Like, don't even try to complicate it. Just go, how am I breathing? Uh, when I gave my lecture to UQ Ventures a couple of years ago, the first thing is like, you want people to understand where they breathe into. So, do you breathe through your mouth or through your nose? Do you breathe in through your stomach or your belly, or do you breathe into your chest? How fast are you breathing? Just jot them down. And again, you have to remember that nothing is good or bad in this world. It's just can it be done better or more efficiently? So we just, that's how I started and that's how I think most people should start. And again, the reason being is just simple and it's not putting any pressure on yourself. And then once you start understanding your habits, you have some rough data, you can start to change it. And I think that's where learning some very simple stuff like about the tongue probably is the first place. Like the tongue, if everyone just tries swallowing, where does it go? It goes to the roof of your mouth. Why is that? That's because that's where it should rest. And if you keep the tongue there, what you'll find is you will start to automatically breathe through your nose. Now, it's not a specific reflex, but just try breathing with your tongue on the roof of your mouth through your mouth. It's freaking weird. It's just, and, it, and it looks ugly, right? It's not, it's not so good. But once you then go, okay, well, that starts that process off. Sweet. Then you're on the pathway. I think the very first step in that pathway is just learning to breathe through your nose. And then if you can't do that because you have, say, some sinus issues or you've had some nasal cavity deviated septums which to be honest with you according to the data i think it's like up to a third of the population might even have a deviated septum right yeah it's, it's huge it's, it's like much more than i ever thought it Jeez. might even be higher so don't quote me on that because, <laughs> but it's definitely no less than that and the thing is that doesn't mean you can't do it it just means that the way that you do it will be different to someone else and can we improve upon it i'd almost say for a hundred percent of people regardless is that you can it's just what's the sort of risk reward or what is the benefit to cost ratio to it? Yeah. So yeah. I think like the very first thing, tongue on the roof of the mouth, breathe through the nose is the easiest place to start once you've, you know, again, brought the awareness to yourself of what's going on. Yeah. And then what about, I want to get onto the nasal breathing stuff as well, but what about breath timing then? Because I've been playing with this app as my meditation for the last... I was introduced to it last year, but I've been doing it consistently for the last couple of months. And it's, it's just called Breathing App on um, just on the app. Store. Nice name. <laughs> yeah, it's very simple. Um, but I've been really enjoying it. And what it does, you can set the timer to what you want, but you go basically go, all right, I want to go for five or 10 minutes. 
And I want to breathe in for six seconds and exhale, inhale for six seconds, exhale for six seconds. And, and I know there's different um, types of breath timing drills like box breathing, where it's a breath and a hold and then an exhale and then a hold and so on. But uh, I think there's some science behind the six seconds in, six seconds out. Isn't Certainly there? is. Yeah. Uh, so hit us with that. Yeah. Well, depending on exactly where you read into it, five to six breaths per minute is what you're looking for. And the reason it has this thing... And I always forget which exact term it is, but I think it's the heart coherence. Effectively, what you're looking at is as your breath goes into that sort of zone, your brain waves start to slow down and you become more relaxed. So you go into that parasympathetic state and everything starts to slow down and your heart starts to move in time with your diaphragm. And what becomes very good about that is it, well, what people say from yogic terms and then into science is that your body seems to be moving as one with itself. And for anyone who doesn't know anatomy, because anatomy is fantastic, your diaphragm sits just below your heart. So every time it moves, it's going to have an effect up into the heart. And that's where the coherence part comes to it. As you breathe slower, your heart will then react to what your diaphragm's doing. And then that can then put you in a certain state, which is what they found with the six or the five to six. I think if you look at it, it's like 5.5 breaths per minute yeah. on average. And again, I'm rounded and, it to yeah, six yeah. on my app. <laughs> yeah. And I think for everyone, that's going to vary slightly. Again, everyone's very individualistic, but these numbers are just rough zones. And I think that's a better way to look at it because again, if you can't hit that now, say if you start trying it, it's actually quite hard at the start when you have a very low carbon dioxide tolerance. So you have to build to it. So starting at three and three is perfectly fine. Yeah. I was about, I was about to say like the way, the way I first started teaching people when I started was kind of focusing not on a box breath, but on a what I called the golden rule, silly thing, uh, of <laughs> one, one, two, one. Because... The way you look at the way you breathe, you should breathe in for, say, let's go two seconds and exhale twice as long. Because yeah. as you breathe out, you start to get the heart rate to drop, the blood pressure to drop, and more parasympathetic effect. So it was logical to me to go, if I encourage everyone to breathe out twice as long, they'll be calmer, which puts them in the rest and digest, which means that any injury that they have start to heal a bit better. The reason I added the one and one at the end is there should be a natural pause at the end of an in-breath and an end of an out-breath. So I wonder if I just make it one, one, two, one. It's like, this is a number that everyone can remember. It also happens to mean that if you did it in that style, one, one, two, one, you're going to breathe for four seconds. So then how do you get to 60? It's like, okay, I can see how we can then start to go. That's like 15 times per minute. It's roughly in what the textbook says is normal, which I'm still going to tell you is too fast. <laughs> but I was like, okay, what happens if we just go two, two, four, two? And then it starts to make a lot more sense that the timing becomes very important of how you do it. And then I've since scrapped the name Golden Rule because I just think it's a bit silly. Uh, young me was a bit naive. But it was it was interesting to see the responses of that versus something like a 6-6. Six, six, six. Yeah. Yeah, so there was a few little bits in there that I want to remember to come back to. You mentioned carbon dioxide tolerance. Um, but also you mentioned heart coherence. Now, with that... Um, is that that's mostly related to heart rate variability, is it, or is there something else in there? I'm actually can't remember the whole. Yeah, it, it's thing. it's one of those things that I try not to delve into much because it gets to a point where it is like, oh wow. The the easiest way to remember it is it's how your heart and diaphragm are kind of moving together, and then with heart rate variability, it does have an effect in, in some capacity because for anyone who doesn't know, when you have a high heart rate variability, what it means is the beats of your heart 
aren't necessarily in the exact time. So if we said like one through 60 seconds, if your heart was beating on every five, that's very low heart rate variability. And what it means is your body is slightly more stressed. If you had a heart rate variability, it was like one, three, nine, 15, 12, like whatever the system is. It just means your heart is, the way I look at it, has an increased capacity. You've allowed it to be more resilient because it can kind of create this solid foundation of, I can kind of beat at whatever rate I really need to. And if I need to change it, I can. But if it was really rigid and it's like, it's almost stiff, it's stiff in a pattern. It doesn't have that flexibility to move. Yeah. And like, again, to analogize it to the foot, if the foot's super rigid, it's really hard to then go say, go running and then go climb on rocks or go to the beach because your foot doesn't know how to adapt. Whereas if your heart can do the same, if it's stiff, you're in trouble. But if the heart can be more adaptable, then life's pretty good because it's a bit more flexible. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, so heart, basically having high heart rate variability is a sign of increased parasympathetic nervous system In a sense, you'd activity. find I, I wouldn't be game enough to call it cause and effect. I never am. But like there's a pretty yeah. good correlation. There's a correlation. Yeah. yeah. Um, some people I know who have good heart rate variabilities are some of the calmest people I know, Yeah. which are pretty cool. Yeah. And they've found that things like, yeah, certain breath timing drills and meditation and you know, movement and human touch and things like that can all affect heart rate variability. So it's a, a very uh, interesting sign of health. And I think it's just being researched more and more lately. And there's now heart rate variability monitors. So it's worth, yeah, actually. The aura ring right, right, right here, out. just yeah. chilling out. Yeah. So it's this ring, what Tom's got. Uh, well, you can explain it. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's a fancy looking ring. Um, it's probably about $200 Australian. Effectively, it, it, I use it to track sleep. Um, like with all metrics, the server knows they're not necessarily exact to the point or very accurate, but even inaccurate data can give you a very good trend across time. So that's mm-hmm. why I bought it. And what it'll show you is like how your heart rate variability is during your sleep. It seems to track body temperature and somehow my respiratory rate. Don't ask me how it actually does that. <laughs> it's not what I bought it for, but it does. And then it just shows you like a pattern. So it knows roughly what times you go to bed and what your sort of window is for sleep, which is pretty cool. Um, and then it tells you to start winding down for sleep. And it's just a really nice way of tracking sleep. It does track exercise. Not that I use that function on it, but it gives you this readiness score. Yeah. So say if you've had a good night's sleep, your readiness might be like 90 out of 100. It's like, good, go do what you want. If you had a bad sleep or you haven't slept as much as you'd like or you're just not feeling up to it, it seems to correlate pretty good with that and it'll be like a lower score. So it'll say or suggest, all right, today don't push as hard. So whether that be work or exercise or whatever your commitments are, I think it's pretty cool because it's just a nice, easy way. And like everything, you just don't take it for, you know, gospel. It's just a tool that helps you identify or become a bit more introceptive, looking inwards and understanding yourself. And that's, yeah, what I found, like I use it to journal with as well, just to see if there's anything that I feel when I get these sort of sensations. So I think that's that's a really key thing because as more of these sort of wearable technologies come out and people start to, I guess, rely a lot on this sort of externalized data of you know an app or a, a machine telling them how healthy they are or what whether they should do more steps or this and that. Uh, I think a lot of that stuff is valuable, but like we've talked about before, and I think Brian McKenzie was part of a whole book about it, or maybe... A, maybe Unplugged? Unplugged, yeah. So it's Sitting all about, on my bedroom floor. Oh, there you go. I haven't even got it on my bedroom floor yet, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to get there. But I remember hearing him talk about it and just how it is actually so important. If you are using those, 
to, well, first of all, you don't have to necessarily use those things. You can just tune into and listen to your body. But mm. if you are using those kinds of technologies to use them to facilitate more introspection as well, not just to go, okay, it says this, so this is what I'll do. It's, it says this, how am I feeling? Does that line up with how I'm feeling? Or, um, you know, is there something I might be not tuning into as well? Or is there something that the machine is probably missing? Because I feel awesome and it's, you know, it's just using it as a frame of reference rather than a, yeah, like a, a gospel, like you said. And I think that's uh, when you look at it for some people who probably say older than us, for example, who have been introduced to the world of technology and it's become a very part of the way they use their life, whether it's emails on phones or the app that's on that their app on their um, watch or whatever. If you're using it as a way to get into it, it's fantastic because it shouldn't just be the gateway. It yeah. shouldn't be the end result. The end result should really. I think in the utopian world be, I can wake up and go, I know that I feel pretty good. I'm going to exercise to whatever intensity. You track stuff like, and you and I both know, like if you're trying to get progressive load across time, it's you probably should track some stuff because you're trying to create an adaptation. But when it comes to things in your day-to-day, it's like, this is only going to tell me a certain part. Am I going to react to it or am I going to change anything that I do to it will be very important because you can just track all this data and never do anything with it. Mm. And then there just becomes a monotonous task and a waste of your time. Waste, waste of money too. Yeah, like it's two hundred bucks. Yeah, uh, it looks pretty. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Is it only two hundred now? Uh, I swear, when they came out, they were like five hundred. Yeah, they were much more expensive. It put me off for a long oh, year. Have to grab one. Yeah, then. Uh, yeah. This one, I, I got the sizing kit. If you want one, okay. if anyone wants to try sizing yeah. kit, it's like, oh, hit me up with it's like that. Twelve or thirteen sure. sizes. <laughs> now, um, so pretty much the the gist of all that is that uh, breathing can be a really great gateway into. Uh, increasing parasympathetic nervous system activity and I guess decreasing or coming out of that sympathetic nervous system activity. Now, it's not that parasympathetic or sympathetic are bad or good. They're both very important systems depending on the context. It's more that um, most people probably spend a bit too much time in the sympathetic nervous system because of our modern culture and and Mm. our modern lifestyles and environment. And um, I thought we might just break down parasympathetic versus sympathetic um, very basically and talk about why it's important to have more of that parasympathetic going. Yeah, cool. So I think that's a great overview though because that pretty much explains a good chunk of it, right? (laughs) When you're looking, you always remember the simple terms because I I like simple. Parasympathetic is rest and digest. So anytime that you're eating, anytime you're resting, that's where you should be. Sympathetic is the opposite. Sympathetic is your fight, flight, sort of mode now there's a free section to that which is a bit more murky a bit harder to explain but just think fight flight the reason you have it again is just evolution right your body was like okay time to sleep i'm gonna go into the parasympathetic i'm gonna rest i'm gonna chill that comes from that really deep sort of mammalian brain reptilian brain like the deeper stuff the sympathetic was like okay i'm about to get chased by a goddamn tiger i better get up and moving so what they effectively do is start to secrete and mobilize different hormones or different chemicals so if you're in a sympathetic state and you're trying to go to sleep, you're going to have a hard time going to sleep. I, th- I suppose if we start to talk some examples, like have you ever gotten to the shower and your brain just runs wild? It's just like thinking about everything you could have done today or you're thinking about the girl you text and it's like, oh God, she hasn't written back. Why hasn't you written back? <laughs> or your work emails that you haven't responded to, like I should do that before bed. It's like you feel agitated. And then when you go to sleep or you get into bed, it's the same thing. Whereas it shouldn't be that way. You should hopefully be able to get to points in your day where you feel calm and at ease. And not that you're feeling blank, but you're just chilled. And that particularly before you go to rest. And as to your point, like in our modern society, unfortunately, we're in constant contact. And if we don't watch it, which has kind of happened, 
we stay in that sympathetic state. And like within people's work days, right? A lot of people will wake up, they either go to the gym or go to work. And that's what I'd call a transition period. If you don't take the time to transition from the gym where you're probably lifting fairly weights or you're doing your cardio, you're heightened, you're feeling excited because your body needs those chemicals. But if you go straight to work and you don't take time to downregulate, you're already coming at work here where you should be coming in here. So when you start to do all the tasks, and let's just use like the almost stereotypical business person like at his computer, constant sort of input is coming in from that screen, whether it be from emails, they've got jobs to do, they've got you know, they'll app open that they're talking to their colleagues, like there's constant sort of um, feedback. And as you and I sort of both know, delayed gratification is a very fantastic thing. But in this world, it's very instantaneous. So if I send a message, I want to hear back from you. But if I don't hear back with you from, you know, some X number of time, I might start to feel anxious. It's like, okay, so I'm going to be sympathetic. I'm going to sit there. And particularly if there's a deadline, right? So then you start staying like that all day, and then by the time you get home, if you don't then wind down, you stay here, again, where you should have been here. And then that cycle sort of perpetuates. You have less sleep or a worse quality sleep. So you have less parasympathetic time. And then you wake up, you do it again and again. Yeah. And one of the ways people deal with that is coffee. Yes. And <laughs> Lots yeah, of coffee. Which then gets you back into sympathetic. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it's, it's a cycle that will perpetuate itself. And it does so for... Yes, and you may never know because you don't know any norm. Your body's real smart and it habituates to chronic stress. Exactly. Because it doesn't need you to think about it. Otherwise, you will run yourself insane. And the, the chronic stress thing, I guess this is really the crux of it, hey, because, um, yeah, people are like, oh, it's all right, I'm just wired all the time. Like, you know, that's just me. Like, I do it, I have my coffees, I come home, yeah, I get like four mm. hours sleep and people can almost wear it like a bit of a badge of honor. Um, but... The fact is that our bodies, when, when we were doing the bulk of our evolution, we were essentially, you know, quote unquote, designed to have small, short bouts of stress, aka running from a tiger or something like that, or hunting something. So stress can be really, really good, um, but then with adequate recovery, which is that parasympathetic. So um, when you're running away from a tiger, your body isn't thinking about you know, how can I build my immune system? How can I uh, build muscle or, you know, regenerate tendons or, you know, this, this and that. Uh, it's not focusing on all of those rebuilding recovery things. It's focusing on actually suppressing all of that so that it's mobilizing all of its resources to the appropriate places. Mm. Um, and so, yes, that chronic stress, like you said, the body can habituate to chronic stress. And the thing that you know we'd always talk about is that the body is an amazingly amazing compensator so it can compensate for all these different scenarios quite well but at the same time if the body is compensating that doesn't necessarily mean it's optimal and there is a limit to how much the body can tolerate it's the human bodies are amazingly resilient mm. but what they've found now in the research is that chronic stress is actually directly related to pretty much every lifestyle disease pretty much every like preventable disease that you yeah. can find is related to a sympathetic nervous system yeah right it has something to do there same way uh, matt walker the sleep researcher almost all sleeping issues to date have to do with your sympathetic nervous system yeah right and that's again coming back to like how we look at things and that's why i come to that same conclusion as you is it's like if you go back to the very fundamentals of it it's a sympathetic nervous system drive that causes most issues for people now i think like the premise or like the crux to all of it is look if you like living a very busy life 
great. Like, that's fine. Like, that's what you choose to do and that's who you want to be. That Like, no one's going to ever begrudge you for it. The compensation might come as like, you know, cardiovascular disease or something and you might die young. So you're making a choice whether, you know, you have the instant gratification of I'm busy now. I got the badge of busyness, like you said. I'm going to go to work, et cetera, et cetera. But I might die at 65 or I might die at 70. Whereas, you know, people maybe like you and I go, nah, not about that. <laughs> like I want to live a long and sort of happier life and I don't mind working for longer periods of my life because I thoroughly enjoy what I do. Yeah. And that means that our relationships tend to often be better with people because we're calmer. So we're not as reactivity, which has to do with the way that your brain functions when you're stressed, which is a whole topic itself. And it's like, okay, well, this is fun. This is cool. But that's the lifestyle we've chosen. Yeah. Now what's better for the overall of society and like humankind, I'm probably going to argue it's our lifestyle because people have become very reactive, um, social media and internet hasn't helped, but in the same token, internet's fantastic, right? It allows us to do all this information, allows us to meet, allows us to do it, and it's just depending on how you use it. But if everyone in society had more downtime or just a bit more of an awareness of what their life could feel like, there'd be less fights. You'd probably have less people just arguing about stuff that isn't important. You might find that marriage doesn't end up in divorce like 50% of the time because people are just in better states all the time. And that means in the healthcare system, again, ideally we'd have less of like this influx of preventable diseases, which is what the government spends billions of dollars a year trying to prevent. It's like, well, it kind of starts from young. And then if we start the habits now, then hopefully our kids and et cetera, et cetera, can go that way. And then... Who knows where humankind could end up? So better breathing will save the world, basically. Yes, pretty much. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the, the idea. If you all breathe really well, uh, <laughs> we Elon can, can take us to the moon and I'm just going to save planet Earth. <laughs> but but seriously, though, it is it is such a fundamental thing and, and just understanding that, um, yes, you can get into the, that sort of those busy times and those you know intense workouts and all this sympathetic activity, but if you know then how to switch back into parasympathetic with the right breathing tools, because, I mean, there's different ways to switch back into parasympathetic, but breathing mm. is probably the most obvious and most efficient way to, to do that. And it's free. It's free. And it feels bloody good as well. Mm. Uh, once you sort of, once you sort of train up a little bit, um, and yeah, it's, it's nice to know that you can just switch focus to your breathing and not immediately, but over time, get back into that rest and digest. And the more you practice that, the more efficient you get at doing that as well. Mm-hmm. And so I've had times where maybe I've had one too many coffees in the day and I've hit the bed, my heart's pumping, my mind's all over the place. And then I go, okay, I'm going to focus on my six seconds in, six seconds out. And at first it's like, I can't do this because it's too much. It hurts. it hurts to focus on this. But then I just keep bringing it back to that focus and next minute I'm asleep and I wake up the next day. It gives so, you a huge sense of control, right? Huge. And like breathing with the meditation to like round that off. I had, it might have been my housemate, say so like in a negative sense to meditation, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes where you're like, oh, I'm stressed. I'm going to meditate and it might work. But when you're really, really stressed, does it work? Was he's like, how do you know? my rebuttal to it was mostly if you constantly meditate across time we and we know that your brainwave activity does change you just start to think differently and therefore you don't get as stressed yeah so it is a self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense but over time what you find is the levels are just better and it's calm mm. and that's like what i've aimed for and personal experience kind of like yourself has suggested that it works fantastically mm. so and and there's research as well on 
um, people who suffer with anxiety and anxiety mm. attacks and things like that. And, and just simply by slowing down their breathing, then they can have a huge impact on their sort of mental state as huge. well. And so, uh, I mean, all of that, that anxiety does relate to sympathetic, acti- sympathetic activity as well. Everything's sort of overwired, so to speak. And yeah, tapping into breathing more controlled and slower breathing can make a huge difference to those kinds of symptoms. So well, anxious, anxiousness and anxiety in my opinion, would be as much a physical issue as it is psychological because it's your body responding. And to, you can't really separate the two. Anyway, no, like that they, they are one in the same. And like yeah. a, one of my favorite books to like go into that stuff, it gets, there's a lot of stories in, but Bessel van Kolk's book of like the body keeps the score. Now like mm. him himself, like that one's he, on my bedroom. Yeah. He, he has been, he's been in trouble in the past for like going in court and talking about potential falsified memories and such, but the book itself is fantastic. And there are books like it as well. But when you understand that your emotions and your sort of physical self are one in the same thing, that when someone comes and like sees me in the clinic, for example, your injured ankle is not just an injured ankle, it's an injured ankle and there's a history and it's like, oh crap, there's a grand final. Like that intense emotion then gets linked to this through like neuroassociation. Mm-hmm. That happens throughout all of your life with everything that we do and the more that we associate things, which we do because that's the way humans function the more you can start linking everything back to certain premises and that's where you start to like help things. And being in that parasympathetic state allows you to either rewrite those connections or improve the good ones and then you can just start doing more of the things you actually want to do because you have a clearer mind, you feel more comfortable and your injured ankle is all right, well, it's fine, it'll get better versus the catastrophization that can come with it. Yeah, and we could go really deep into that as well in terms of the pain science and and beliefs and, and all of that stuff, but... I reckon we'll revisit that yeah, in, that's in a, another podcast. That's a whole topic. But I, I do want to delve into nasal breathing versus mouth breathing because I know that's such a central component of all of this stuff and you've already mentioned it today. But why don't we get into, you know, how, how should we breathe through our nose or mouth and why pretty much? Okay. Well, I mean, again, so back to our fundamentals, get the awareness first and then tongue on the roof of the mouth and then breathe through the nose. The reason it should be in and out through the nose, the out parts of the thing that gets people is you're looking at what the functions of the nose and the mouth are. And if we explain those, that might actually help a little bit because your mouth is designed for eating, right? It allows you to get food in, etc. Under times of sympathetic stress or when you really need large amounts of like oxygen, that's what it's there to do. It, it kicks in when it needs. So it's kind of like you're revving your car and the red engine and you're like, you really need to go real fast. But it doesn't have all the benefits that the nose does. So with the way that your nasal cavity is designed... It has these things called cilia, which are like little hairs and mucus. That's probably the first point of contact um, right at the tip here at the entry point. Why are they important? Because any like pathogen or any sort of irritant that comes in gets picked up by those and then you either spit it out or you swallow it. And that happens at about a rate of two centimeters per hour, I think, roughly. Oh, per minute. I've got to look into that again. But like (laughs) it's constantly happening. So it's getting rid of all the irritant. Mouth doesn't have that effect. The second thing is the way that the nasal cavity is designed with these turbinates or nasal concha. Air itself, airflow is like lemon. It goes straight, it just keeps flowing straight. But what your nasal cavity is designed to do is to slow that down, make it a bit more turbulent, which allows more time to humidify the air. And I think most people in general know that if you go outside in a cold winter's morning, which doesn't get too cold in Brisbane, but when it's cold, it's harder to breathe, hard to breathe in that air, particularly when it's through your mouth. And people who have exercise-induced asthma will definitely know about that. 
But the longer the time the air spends in your nose, the warmer it can get. And that's what those turbines are for. And then additionally put, you have these things that are called paranasal like sinuses. And what they're effectively there to do is to secrete this sort of chemical called nitric oxide. Now, yeah. anyone who knows about nitric oxide, it's a great <laughs> little chemical. But simply put, it opens up your blood vessels and opens up the pathway of breathing. Now, the reason is why is that all important? Your mouth does none of it. So you lose, like, the, there has been written by a guy named William Cottle that there's up to 30 benefits of your breathing through your nose versus your mouth. Some of them are like athletic, some of them are health related, some are sexual related for anyone who cares about that. There's a, there's a lot of things that it can do, but your mouth doesn't do any of it. And then that's, you know, as you delve into it, there is just so much evidence and physiological understanding that breathing through your nose gives you all these things that you can't get with your mouth. Yeah. And one of my favorite books on breath is by James Nestor called, it's just called Breath, isn't it? It is just Breath, yeah. Yeah. So really good book. Uh, Great on Audible as well, if anyone likes audio books. But he actually did a, a... test essentially an experiment on himself and um, another breath researcher where they plugged their nasal cavities for 10 days and they measured all these different things around sleep and um, you know hormonal balance and heart rate and heart rate variability and all of these things and basically everything got worse there was not one measure that got significantly worse because by plugging their nasal cavities and What's interesting is obviously, you know, there are, like you said, apparently there's a third of the population have a deviated septum, mm. deviated septum, but there are, I don't, there are a lot of people that have nasal blockages and things like that. Um, but apparently 25 to 50% of people habitually breathe through their mouth. I'd say it's bigger. <laughs> say I'd, bigger? I'd, I'd say the, num- the number of people that I see in clinic who breathe through their mouth would suggest to me that it's a larger proportion. Yeah. And the, like, the quick reason is because we talk and sing a lot more than historically we used to. Okay. But, like, so if you start to think of, if my mouth's open and I'm talking to you and I'm talking and I'm someone who talks pretty fast, <laughs> then all of a sudden I'm just going to habituate to taking the breath through my mouth. Whereas in yesteryear, there was just less talking because we didn't have as much to talk about, less things to be said, so therefore we just didn't need to. That's an, that's an interesting perspective, actually. I hadn't heard that one before, yeah. but it does make sense. The more you talk, and I'll notice, say, if I'm giving a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour workshop, by the end of it, my mouth is, like, real dry. I'm, yep. I've got, like, a bit of a headache, I'm sort of just a bit thrown off and i think it's a lot of that might be to do with all the mouth breathing from just talking so much accidental mouth breathing that occurs Mm -hmm. and that's why people in our profession who do a lot of talking or podcasting or teachers particularly they have this issue because you're talking constantly and we obviously have developed evolutionarily to be able to do it which is fantastic but we don't necessarily wind up to do it or wind down to do it we just talk because you know talking something that we automatically do we don't think of what it's causing or what's happening which is you know again interesting yeah but it's a part of that understanding and the i guess the other thing when it comes to nasal breathing that i've heard and i think it was in that book is about facial structure and um you know jaw structure and mouth structure and everything that has obviously been influenced by our modern diet so there was a, a, a dentist called Weston A. Price who went around to a lot of tribal societies in different parts of the world to see how they differ from us in terms of 
diet and then therefore bone structure and health conditions and everything. And he wrote a book called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And essentially all of our ancestors and tribal populations who haven't been exposed to modern diets and, and lifestyles have perfect bone and jaw and teeth structure, essentially. And also, you know, wider faces with wider nasal cavities and things like that that facilitate nasal breathing. Hmm. And it's just interesting how the effect of, like, in one generation... I think he's found in one or two generations of eating more processed, um, you know, foods like grains and things like that rather than their traditional diets... They their facial structure changes within Huge. one or two generations, and then that's so, sounds like it's more likely to um, facilitate mouth breathing. Yeah, it's kind of like, and this is the story I, I like to use because I mean, we all love stories, right? If I was talking to two like parents, a group of parents, and I said to them, if you wanted to, or if there's a drug that could give your kid improved concentration as they grow up. It makes them look aesthetically pleasing to people. They're attractive, right? You increase their potential to be athletic or have athletic performance. You improved the way that they think as they grow up, which means then they can do whatever they want. And they, they grow up to not have anxiety or they don't grow up with depression or, again, have the potential to grow up with these things. It's like, oh, if you offer that to parents, most people can take that straight up. That is what nasal breathing can do for you. Right, the, and the more that you understand all the factors like the facial positioning, the way that it develops through the windpipe, because again, you mouth breathe, your windpipe doesn't get the same level of development, and that actually just becomes narrower. It's like okay, those are factors that have clearly been at research for years, but we just don't talk about them and try to collate them into the one way. That's why eating processed food is bad because you just don't chew as much, so you don't get the same muscular pull. And anyone who is like a biomechanist or a physio, it's like, look, we know if you put force somewhere, you will adapt. Chewing is a force. Mm. The tongue pressure on the roof of the mouth is a force. The more the force is there, the more you'll adapt over time. And it just makes a hell of a lot of sense to start now. And that's like when you were talking about uh, epigenetics and genetics earlier, we can only do so much there at the moment. But what we can definitely do is influence the nature part to it from the time that we are born. And that's something that most parents don't know about, unfortunately, I don't think, just from what the research and what the books are out there now for the last 30 years. But thankfully, the people like James Nestor, Patrick McEwen, writing these super easy books for people to understand and like highly recommend them to everyone because you can give yourself an advantage in life and your children the opportunity to do whatever they want effectively by just cultivating a better lifestyle, which mm. just comes with walking barefoot, Breathe through your nose. Yeah, start with those <laughs> yeah, two things. Yeah, like you start there and life's pretty good. Yeah, and it, everything just flows from mm. there. Um, and so speaking of, again, speaking of nasal breathing in relation, so obviously people should be habitually breathing through their nose day to day um, for, the, for, the, you know, for the bulk of their waking hours, obviously, unless you sing in a concert or mm. given a workshop. Um, but obviously, the more you breathe through your nose habitually, the more you'll be able to get away with short bouts of mouth breathing which is good so you know mouth breathing isn't the end of the world but it just shouldn't be your habitual um, breath but then I guess a lot of people would have questions around well you know if I'm running or I'm exercising then I get puffed and I'm panting and and of course I'm going to breathe through my mouth because that you know like you said that's my backup that's my rev engine um, surely I need to do that with exercise what, what do you reckon about that it's going to depend on the exercise and the individual 
but so like you know i am technically like a, a very low level running coach but i love running i love what it does for people and i love that we were we're designed to run right what i would suggest is people's training volumes and intensities are probably just off quite a bit there's a book by matt fitzgerald called 80 20 running which mm-hmm. essentially says that 80 percent of your running should be long light and slow and under what we call your anaerobic threshold or your lactate threshold um, depending on which metric you want to use which means that you should be able to talk comfortably during it which means you should be able to breathe comfortably during it through your nose what ends up happening is as people go out for their day-to-day run or whatever they're trying to beat their old pb from the course so they're always pushing that thing and it everybody everybody who does running who doesn't quite understand the physiology pushes to that boundary and they're pushing past their threshold all the time it's why they do get hot sweaty and pantering what ends up happening is when you start educating them on like you know all the other things are running we'll stick to breathing for the second and like okay just i want you to run through the intensity that you can breathe through your nose for the most of your runs what you find is their heart rate across two weeks will start to drop they will full calm but the first two weeks feel like shit they're terrible they're hard the reason i would suggest that to everyone with the running is it just means that when you go to do the big spurts even so yesterday and we're talking about it real quickly on the footpath the spurts then are fine because your body has habituated to a calmer version you've spiked it it'll come back but if you're habituating again to this constant cycle of stress you're adding another stressor within life with whether it be like from work or from relationships with mm-hmm. exercise and you're just not going to recover as well and that's why a lot of people get hurt because you're always pushing the engine so the whole concept of 80 20 look i think it's probably going to be more like 90 10 after really talking to some people and thinking about it but the concept is do a lot through your nose and then just go through your mouth when it gets intense or for short bursts and i mean and I, just bring it back to your, ne- your nose as soon as possible basically and like you can build that intensity up a lot and the more that you breathe through your nose, the more you get all your intra-abdominal pressure well, which means all your intra-abdominal musculature and everything around here works really well, which means you can connect your foot to your hip better. Mm. So you can get more power and more stride efficiency, etc. And with the kettlebell stuff that I do personally, there's a lot of breathing through the nose and then the mouth for certain like intense swings. By the way, it's worked. It's like you're making a sound which gets the abs on, but it's a, a forced exhale which gets your abs on through this very like narrow hole in your mouth Mm. it's fine but it's just a matter of what's around it so we do that for say i'd reckon like 15 seconds at times and then you literally breathe for 45 seconds just chilling out like the ratio is huge so the more that you can do the nose then fine jump up to the mouth but you have to hopefully then learn to habituate back yeah and so what i try to do on my runs which i'm i'm still quite a i guess inexperienced runner I haven't done a huge amount of running in my time but I've actually really come to enjoy it and I'm focusing on nasal breathing uh, based off what I've read from Patrick McCowan and James Nestor and I actually read that um, it's called The Oxygen Advantage by Patrick McCowan great book really good book it was I think that was the first one that really put all this stuff on my radar and Hmm. I was in Toowoomba for a a placement I was um staying with my grandparents while I was up there on a physio placement and was reading this book and started doing these nasal, you know, nasal breathing only on my walks and um, then doing breath holds as well. So counting how many steps I could do on a breath hold, but it had to be silent nasal breathing only the entire time. So I couldn't hold my breath and then go 60 steps and go (laughs) like that. And um, so I started playing, I started playing with that and just, found i mean especially with this 
beautiful crisp Toowoomba air, mm. but just that nasal breathing and going for the breath holds and, and feeling that my breath holds were getting better and better on these walks, I would just start to feel high on life. Like mm. it, it, things like everything was just a little more positive and more vibrant and all of these things. And, and there's just a lot of power to nasal breathing and, and, so I want to chat about that in a second. But then now what I try to do with running, I really enjoy running. I don't really like running slowly for some reason. <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit of a speed demon, but basically now that fast. I, I, know, I know that I need to focus on nasal breathing, I basically run fast for as long as I can while maintaining pretty consistent nasal breaths. Um, and then I walk try and regain that consistent nasal breathing once I get, you know, once I get to the point in the run that it's too much and then I go back into it and I usually try and time it with music a little bit as well and wait for the drop and go for a well, go There's for a so many cool, cool ways to do it, right? And I, I've been looking into trying to get the more health sort of scientific perspective of what metabolic equivalent you should switch across. Like where do you need to switch and how much like oxygen or volume of oxygen can you get through your mouth versus mm. your nose? It's not really that important though because it's very self-guided. Like, the, So the test that I use is 181, 182, 183, 184, 185. If I can say that in one breath to myself, it's like a talk test as I'm running, then I know that I'm probably under my threshold. If I can't, I'm probably over the threshold. It's much more practical than trying to figure out, oh, what level of oxygen do I really need? Right? Because you're not looking at this thing going, oh, it's, there's no data there useful. Yeah. With what you're doing, like it's there's nothing wrong with it because you're about to like up and down. Most training should be either intense bouts of like you're up and then you're down. Look at sprint training. Mm. You sprint once and rest for five minutes. That's basically what I'm doing. Yeah, quite quite, <laughs> quite literally. And he does run like Usain Bolt. <laughs> but like Stop. there's no there's no good evidence to suggest that you should sit here in the middle the whole time. It's actually all that's more likely to cause injury. Mm. Whereas either it's super long and slow or it's kind of really intense is how training is designed. Yeah. How it should be designed. And the again, it's just it just fits biologically and that's why we do it. Exactly. And um on that, so nasal breathing, a lot of people, you'll notice if you go out for a walk and you haven't tried any of this stuff, if you go out for your normal walk or run or, or any kind of exercise, we'll just use the example of running for now, and you try and only breathe through your nose, you're going to find it pretty tough at first. And, and you're going to find like, what? Like I can't do anywhere near as much as I used to be able to do. And so surely the nose isn't better to breathe through. But Part a huge part of that is just you're not used to breathing through your nose and you're used to over breathing, right? Mm. So you're taking in too much oxygen and um, blowing out too much carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide. So yeah, chat about that. Oh, I mean, like the useful part there is that when you learn to breathe through your nose, it's like much more efficient. It's like depending on which intensity, it's anywhere from sixteen to twenty five percent more efficient. What that means is because you have the nitric oxide in there, and then all those other benefits we spoke about you can then upregulate the amount of oxygen you can get. Because again, if you think about it, if I open up my blood vessels, so particularly the arteries, and then I open up the windpipe, there's more room to move. There's less resistance, which means the flow can be better, which you won't get that through your mouth. So not only can I get more in there and more molecules coming in, it's also getting filtered, right? It's also getting humidified. And if I learn to breathe at appropriate volumes for what I'm doing, you also maximize the amount of oxygen you get in in the first place. You get all these great benefits. So over time, yeah, after the first two weeks, you start to get a bit easier. But I guarantee with the numerous clients that I've done this with, the first like two to four weeks can be hell because what you'll feel 
is the only way I've put words to it is a carbon dioxide no- nose burn. Mm. Like it starts to feel almost warm and cold at the same time and it just feels very uncomfortable. It dissipates. You can cause some issues if you really, really force it. So that's why you try to not push that intensity for the first few. But you will find that you can't run as fast or as long. And you, But what you'll feel is that you recovered much faster after the run or the walk or whatever you're doing. You're like, oh, I feel a lot better. And that has down to biomechanics because of the way that this all works again, that everything does its job a bit better automatically, which is great. But also your parasympathetic system is allowing you to recover better. Mm. You're not trying to force it as much. And so you could say that really you're only as fit, you know, whatever movement you can currently do, whatever, whatever training and intensity you can currently do, you're really only as fit as you can do those things with nasal breathing pretty much. I pretty much say all yoga, all like beam stuff or everything. Try and see how deep you can get your inhale just to see how it feels, right? And that's one of the great things about old yoga, not current yoga, the way it's taught, but like the old stuff where it's all active. It's like if I can get all the way around and take a really full inhale, I own that position. Mm. Like I feel calm there. I feel good. Then I can play with it. And that's kind of like, you know, when you first time you get on a beam, you just feel a bit out of whack. You have no idea what's going on. You're probably not even breathing. But watching you and like everyone who's seen your channel knows, you you look pretty calm on there for the most part. And you can Mm. spin, you can do jumps or whatever. That's a a guarantee I put you on that you probably breathe really well. I'd say so. Yeah, and I do do focus on it as well, um, you know, nasal breathing. And and what you said there is a really important point is that unless you can breathe efficiently during a movement, you don't truly own that movement Mm. because you're either, yeah, terrible at that movement or you're stressed stressed or you're leaving performance on the table or you're leaving recovery on the table. And and that's the thing. Like if you think of when you feel stressed, think of any time in your life you feel stressed, right? How well do you think? It's never. You, You feel really bad. And like this whole good stress versus bad stress, if you actually look at like the ideology or of the word, like where it comes from, it wasn't really the right word that they're putting to it. Strain was the word where it should have come from. Mm. If you look back to stoicism, if you are strained is different to feeling like, you know, stressed. Yeah. Like there is, there's difference. And if you can breathe in any position, you own it. But if you can do the same thing at work, you probably feel calmer. It's one of the things I educate entrepreneurs with. If you're going to go pitch or you're going to go to like this big round table meeting, you walk in there stressed, you're not going to say what you need to say. You're probably going to miss stuff because you're stressed. Yeah, your, you got, brain, your brain is in fight or flight, not in... It's not yeah. focusing on how to get the best sort of articulation of your thoughts. Nah, it, it's about make sure I don't die in here and I don't yeah. look like a fool. So you're, just, you're not thinking about what you're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. So essence there is breathe through your nose as much as possible, especially when you're exercising and take, take off some load of your usual exercise while you habituate to nasal breathing because it's going to feel, yeah, it's going to feel like hell to start with but then over time as you habituate to that nasal breathing you will become uh, things will become more efficient and then that will be your preferred method and you'll also just start to notice how bad it feels to mouth breathe oh, mouth breathing feels atrocious now I don't remember last time I did it except unless you're a swimmer if you're a swimmer you have to but they have a lot of cool stuff that goes with the pressure of the water but that's a whole other topic yeah. and uh, one last thing on nasal breathing something that I've found helpful as well is um that this was in the oxygen advantage as well, but putting a little bit of micropore tape over your lips when you go to sleep. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant little thing because that basically encourages or you know habituates you to 
breathing through your nose at night. And I found when I first started doing that, I would start waking up with a lot more energy and a lot, a lot. I just clearly I had a better sleep because I was like, whoa, this is and great. That and can be tracked. Yeah, can 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 confirm with the aura ring. It works. It's uh, it's it is the same thing. Like when I first did it, and again, maybe ask questions if you have never tried it because the first two nights you try it. The panicky, even the first time you put the tape on, it feels terrible. You're like, what the hell is this? Because, you know, we watch movies like the only people who have tape mm. on their mouth are getting kidnapped. <laughs> so you feel very uncomfortable. But once you start getting into it and like like everything, you lean into it, you lean into the fear of it, you feel amazing. Mm. Like, and that, So I don't do it every night now, mostly because I'm trying to learn to do it without the tape. Yeah, yeah. But, once you get yeah. used to it, you don't really need it. I reckon I did it every night for a good six months. Yeah, just to keep practicing. Yeah, and something something to help is just don't use any old tape. Use like actual micropore tape, which is very sort of um, sensitive. Three M is and, like the best one. So you have got the white or the skin colored version, yeah. which you can just buy at Chemist Warehouse or the Myo tape, which you can buy from Potato or even online from the Oxygen Advantage, which. I still have it coming, which just hasn't come yet. But oh. I like the tape itself. I think it feels very good. And you only want like the thin strip. I go straight across because this one here, I still feel like I could cheat a little bit. Yeah. But again, it's that part is kind of just whatever feels comfortable. Yeah. And um, yeah, I have a funny story of because I, I was like getting into taping my mouth and stuff. And he does strictly say in that in that book not to use certain types of tape and and uh, to use micropore tape because it's very easy to get off and it doesn't um you can also there's some passage of air between it so it doesn't like sort of fog up the tape and mm. you know everything anyway for some reason i must have run out of my micropore tape or something like that and i, I chucked like duct tape on or yeah, something good. something real hardy and uh it got all attached to like my whiskers and things and hard um, to pull off hey very hard to pull off <laughs> especially in a hurry and so i had this this epic sneeze building up in the morning and I'm like oh dear I gotta get this tape off and then I'm like mm, and then <laughs> and it all just obviously went through the uh, nose or like just exploded in my head can't so, confirm not good for you doesn't good feel good so yeah. yeah avoid that where possible don't make that mistake like I did <laughs> um, but yeah very, very handy thing you can also if you don't mind looking a little funny you can tape your mouth while you exercise too um so running and walking and, and I know a lot of people, well, not a lot, but I know some people do that and mm. it's a great, it's basically just a way to remind yourself and cue yourself to not breathe through your no, uh, mouth. Yeah. So. And I think just like the, the quick little backward step, because I don't think it was on our list to talk to is like some people who do have the sinus problems, whether it be the deviated septum or they've got chronically inflamed sinuses, there are different ways to like figure out what's going to be best for you. So like one of the issues for a lot of people might just be sinuses feel blocked. Like there are little quick tricks that you can learn to like sinus massage mm. or you can open up the sinuses, which are very quick. Again, they're free, which is why I like them and they work really efficiently. Or it could be that your little nose here collapses when you breathe in and that, and that very much affects the way you breathe in through your nose. So I know a lot of people tell me when I first teach them, I can't breathe through my nose, just can't do it. It's like, okay, that's cool. But I, you probably can do it better than what you're currently doing it. And that's what you strive for because every step that is better means you're getting closer to a way of feeling more calm, feeling more optimized effectively. And if you are struggling, then that's what you know, people are out there to help with. It's, it's all about taking steps. And, and James Nestor mentions in his book, I think, or maybe it was in a podcast I was listening to, but he's like, look, if your sink is clogged, your kitchen sink is clogged, you find a way to unclog the sink. 
Mm. You don't just leave it there. Oh, I can't do the dishes or I can't do this because the sink is clogged. It's like, no, well, surely there's a way to unclog the sink. And some and some people can do that, like you said, through exercises that are free. And I, I know that some people do require surgical intervention. Mm. But the idea is that if you can't breathe through your nose, you need to find a way to at least start taking steps towards being able to breathe through your nose. And, the, and, and the caveat to so that is... so key for health. You don't want surgery where possible. Yeah. There are things like, you know, oh, yeah. empty nose syndrome and stuff that yeah. they look terrible. And you the, the more that you try if that's the last resort that's cool like that's might be where you need to go to but you want to give everything a crack before you go under surgery 100 percent, yeah and so and you'll always be surprised at how much change you can make to your mm. body without surgery and um yeah it's a, that's a very important thing to remember but at the end of the day some people will require it and you know find a good surgeon someone you trust etc yeah. but do do whatever you can to not go there not do it um, and also, yeah, just to increase the na- amount of nasal mm. breathing in your life. Mm. So let's jump into, um, like you were talking about before, intra-abdominal pressure. And I just want to, you've obviously talked a bit about diaphragmatic breathing. I just want to compare that to sort of apical or chest breathing. Um, and also, you know, like the difference between sort of diaphragmatic belly breathing versus 360 breathing. Yeah. And um, yeah, how, how all of that relates to mechanics and movement. So obviously that's a huge topic, but... I reckon I can summarize me. it. Yeah. I'll, I'll hit you with it. I think let's start with an image because it's probably the best way to look at it. Let's say we have like a mug, mm-hmm. anyone's day-to-day mug. And I put a balloon in said mug, all right? And I try to blow up the balloon. Now the balloon is your lungs. The mug is your rib cage. Mm. Now, how big is the balloon going to go? As big as the mug. As big as the mug, right? Now, I'm going to get a bowl. I'm going to do the same thing. How big is the balloon going to go? It's going to get as big as the bowl. Exactly. Now, that's going to go on until a point where obviously the balloon can only go so far. Now, your lungs, just by the way of anatomy, can only go so far. But they're very much going to move as much as your ribcage can. So, the biggest thing to import, whether it be like diaphragmatic 360 or apical, is if your ribcage is stiff, you are not going to be able to breathe in well just full stop. So that's why I took this from the art of breath, which is now called shift. Like the, the three things to look at are state mechanics and physiology. And that's purely looking at mechanics. Mm. Like if you have this all stiff, you can be as good at breathing through your nose as you want, but it, you're, you're going to hit a capping point pretty quick because it's just not moving. You can't take it as deeper breaths. No. So you, then you can't achieve like better oxygenation. You can't achieve better clarity because you just physically can't move there. So that's where you have to teach the body to move. So if you have a super, super stiff, like lower stomach, like through your ribs or through your lower back or whatever, you might just find it hard to do diaphragmatic or 360 breathing. And I think that's very important to point out before we go on, because again, they all link hand in hand. So the exercises that I often prescribe are looking at those three things in one versus trying to like go, it's this one, this one, or this one, because it's all linked. It all does the same thing, but that's a very important concept. So then when we go like, what is the diaphragmatic belly breathing versus 360? The belly breathing, for a lot of people will know from like yoga, you breathe into your stomach and you just sort of... Now, it's good, good start, but the issue is that your diaphragm attaches down along the ribs through that whole section. So if I'm only breathing forward, I'm never really pushing back. Now, it's never going to move back quite as far. Got ribs there, got a spine. But it should expand in a full 360 because that's just the way that the diaphragm moves. That is the most efficient way to breathe. That's the best one. Why? Because it's the way the diaphragm does. The diaphragm, depending on which research, again, can do from 60% up to like 90% of the muscular effort required for breathing at rest. 
apical, when you said a chest is breathing up in here, you should be able to breathe in your chest. Your chest should move really, really damn well. The problem is that when people breathe through their mouth, all these muscles in your neck have to do a different role, which means they pull your chest up like this, which can lead to neck pain, upper back pain, shoulder pain, and lower back pain, and pelvic floor issues for that fact. But the issue then also becomes of like, again, efficiency, because we're looking at if I breathe using my diaphragm, and let's just say it does most of the work, it's one muscle versus all these other muscles. I'm not using so much of my day-to-day energy in breathing. It should be about 3 to 5% of your total energy expenditure. When you start doing chest and apical and increase the rate of breathing, all of a sudden, it bumps up. So you're just wasting energy breathing, mm. which you shouldn't have to do because you're not designed to do it. Just You're designed to do that when you're panicked but not designed. So that's why people feel lethargic because they're using energy in places they don't need to. Yeah. So then when you understand that, okay, I've got to make sure I've got a, a bowl or a bucket, not a cup, and I know I've got to breathe down here, all of a sudden you start to feel the expansion and you get things moving. It takes a bit of time, but over time you start to feel better. Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask. Like you mentioned with that balloon in a mug analogy, um, if someone does have stiff ribs or a stiff rib cage and, and trunk in general or, or abdominal muscles, is I imagine it's going to be some combination of both. And from my experience, you know, it always is some combination of all the above. Um, but it's would breathing, deep breathing, or 360 breathing exercises that would form that would help unstiffen or like loosen Correct. up the rib cage as well as general. I would say natural movements or some exercise supplements of increasing thoracic mobility mm. and you know maybe decreasing muscle tension in that area yeah like all of it so like again with the parasympathetic effect because it relaxes the muscle tone one of the mm. first things i give for people with neck pain is breathing because you get rid of all the stiffness first of the musculature like system and they go okay i can move more most of the time particularly if it's on a joint issue and they're like oh that feels really cool because you've just gotten rid of the tone And then when you start to realize, again, like this is more anatomy based, but like your ribs have cartilage, which have like the elastic recoil capacity. So if they can start rotating the way they should, they will start to naturally move again versus being super stiff. So there's another way to save energy because I don't have to use all these muscles to try and move my rib cage. They're just moving fluidly, Mm. which means you feel less stiff. You can breathe easier, which means you can breathe better. And like without going into the depth of it, the way that your lungs and like your rib cage interact with pressures is very much like you breathe in with some active effort, but it should naturally recoil and keep going. Yeah. But the more that it can move, the more freedom it has to do everything that you need it to do. So it's that two-way relationship between br- better breathing will give you better mobility for a number of different reasons, both mechanical mm. and, and neurophysiological. Mm and better mobility will give you better breathing. And that's why yoga is so associative with breathing across yeah. years because if you look at something, it's called the Tibetan rites, which are like some of the oh, first yeah. yeah, the first exercises that were sort of documented from them and like they pretty much hit everything. Like they get you doing rotating. I don't think they make you do side bending, but like they make you do back bending, forward bending. Why? Because they, they knew back then that if the rib cage moved, you could breathe better. And if you could breathe better, the rib cage would move more. And there's that positive feed forward mechanism that it's only going to end in having more opportunity to do whatever you want. Yeah. Because there's a double whammy, right? Like we were never really just supposed to breathe while being still all the time. (laughs) We're supposed to breathe with movement. Like Mm. we've talked about this in the podcast before, how we no longer have to move in order to 
um, survive. We don't yeah. have to find food. We don't have to hunt. We don't have to escape predators. And so, you know, it's such a sedentary lifestyle and culture. And even even for those of us who are, you know, quote unquote active, it's still very sedentary relative to what our well, genes 60 would years ago, right? Like it was, they were, they were actually like four hours a day or something. Yeah. Just with the way they did life. Yeah. And it's just these daily, daily, um, you know, in a, during the bulk of our evolution, we were getting very frequent daily movements, either, yeah, like you said, long and steady, like walking for hours and hours and hours a day mm. or short and intense, like hunting or escaping predators. So really our, our breathing systems, our, you know, our respiratory system is set up for, to be included in movement. It's not about just learning to move, uh, breathe while you're sitting at a desk, although that's important. It's about also finding ways to increase your movement demands and that will that will tie in really, really well with increasing your breathing efficiency. Yeah, it's like, to, yeah, to sum that up, if you, like you said with what um, Patrick McEwen states, if you learn to push that boundary, so let's say you learn to breathe with running, breathing with sitting becomes easy. Oh. Like so it becomes like to the point where it is automatic. And like, I mean, I don't think about it. It'd be interesting to watch the podcast back to see how it goes. But most of the time, I'm just through my nose now, two, three years ago, that wasn't the case, but it's because you push that boundary as far as you can. And then all of a sudden everything easier. It's like, oh yeah, life's and chill. you have these more intense bouts of focus. Like it takes a lot of focus to run with nasal breathing because mm. your body kind of almost especially as you're getting used to it, it kind of wants to revert to that mouth breathing because it's used to over-breathing. It's used mm. to breathing too much. And that, in a sense, almost becomes... Well, it is basically a moving meditation where you're mm. focusing on your breath, how you're breathing, while you're moving. And that like that encourages yeah, that more day-to-day just while you're sitting down. Of course, you're going to be breathing through your nose because you've had these intense sessions of focus on nasal breathing. And that's why for anyone who doesn't know, meditation isn't just solely breathing. Meditation is anything. Of course, yeah. Like literally anything you want it to be. It could be gaming. Not that we're going to do that. (laughs) It's it's something that... It's just as long as you're intently focused on something, you will get into the zone or the meditative state. The reason breathing is often picked is the additional benefits that come with it that you don't quite get with the other things mm-hmm. that we haven't found at least yet. So, And um, let's chat a qu- quickly about mm. intra-abdominal pressure because I know that that comes up a lot, especially in the sort of mobility circles and strength training. Mm. And uh, I myself have experienced a lot of benefit or a lot of um, change in how I've breathed with intra-abdominal pressure um, or changed my breathing to optimize intra-abdominal pressure with strength training which made a huge difference to my knee rehab and so i've experienced um some great stuff with that let's talk about intra-abdominal pressure it's like anyone who wants to lift better if you can fix the intra-abdominal pressure you'll up your lift five to ten percent straight away yeah you don't even have to change your technique (laughs) like it'll happen straight away and it sounds baffling but like it works really quickly because all you're trying to do is get the efficiency of the mechanics like this is where understanding biomechanics is actually very important because your body whilst it can learn to move in so many different ways because we're such an incredible beast there are certain like physiological principles that you can just not go past to a point right so once you get your intra-abdominal pressure that often just comes as you breathe in diaphragm will drop down and then all of a sudden you're increasing the volume in your thoracic uh, cage, but decreasing the volume down here in your sort of abdominal cavity, which just means by pure physics, the pressure has to increase. That then allows you to do some pretty cool stuff. Um, it, it can help 
sort of push your pelvic floor slightly into the lengthened position so it's ready to contract. At the same time, you've got your diaphragm moving down, so they're set pretty good. It then automatically allows you to get your sort of deeper muscles on. Because if you think about what happens with that breath, the little muscles around your spine start to activate because they're all extensors in some capacity. And as you breathe in, your back starts to flex. Something that people don't really seem to want to think about when they go to bend forward, they all panic and tense up when they got a sore back. But if you just breathe in, your back will automatically round, which means that any muscle that's an extensor has the capacity to stop that movement. So then you're getting this nice little sort of internal brace that's going on. Transverse abdominis, the big old muscle in physio that got talked about for years, which is a waste of time trying to just sit here <laughs> for so many people. Nothing wrong with trying to bring some conscious awareness to it, but it has to be put into movement or into it. Yeah. Not just and, lying on a table. Yeah. Lying on your table with knees bent up and uh, yeah. trying to do it for 10 second holds. Yeah. <laughs> but one, once you, you once you breathe, muscles such as TRA, like they're going to go in and out naturally the way they are because it's a non-directional muscle. It just activates as it needs to. And if you can get that cylinder working well, when you go to press through your feet or you go to press through for the bench press or push up, whatever, it's not rigid and stiff. It's dynamically stable. Yeah. It's, it's all functioning. The muscles are on. And then when you add something like that, which helps to increase that activation of your abdominal muscles, like the obliques particularly, that is a very strong structure. Mm. It takes a lot to break it. And mm. that's why we know that you can increase strength straight away if you know how to breathe. Because everyone's sort of really focused on, oh, I've got to improve my core strength, my ab strength, they're doing crunches, they're doing planks, they're doing this and that. But if they're not breathing properly through that, they're, they're dumping a whole heap of performance and efficiency on the... Like, if I, if I was to put a definition to core, it's breath. <laughs> it would effectively learn how to breathe with your movement. Mm. Because if you know how to do that, which varies from movement to movement, you then have that capacity or opportunity to be dynamically stable. And that's something I say to people a lot because I don't think you, you need to be rigidly stable. I don't, like, if you really brace up, if you go into rugby tackle and such, that's a whole different story. But for Context. most, yeah context is very important but for most movements that people do it's you're dynamically stable you're not going to sit in one exact position and if you look at all the research to movement i can ask you to do 100 squats and i guarantee 100 out of 100 you'll move slightly differently every time yeah. it's just the way it works because we're so varied and but there's a few constant habits or like constant sort of very like movements that grossly are similar right yeah yeah dynamically stable is huge because yeah, you don't want to just be this rigid box that it's like, yeah, you're really stable, but you can't move anywhere. And that's there's this concept of um, proximal stability for distal mobility. Um, and that's basically saying, yeah, if you're stable upstream in your trunk and in your you know, quote-unquote core, uh, then your brain's going to feel a lot safer to allow more mobility in other areas because it it's more efficient, it's less prone to injury. And that's how we develop as babies. That's where yes. it comes from. Now, we shouldn't move like babies. I think that's the thing that gets missed with a lot of like <laughs> that stuff. But we use the concept of why do we develop that way? And then why do we move our arms off that? And why do we cross move? It's because it had created these like X patterns effectively across the body that makes us dynamically stable. But yes, the head of a baby is much different. It has to move differently. Duh. 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 <laughs> that's not hard. But there are a lot of commonalities that if you go back to them, and that's why something like our West seems to be super useful they're just exercises at the end of the day. They're just exercises designed to touch someone back into like a previous state where they were a little bit more stable with their movement. 
And that's why they seem to work because you're just awakening old patterns that are incredibly useful to mm. give you the foundation to do something cool like beam work or parkour. They're not going to make you just automatically be able to jump higher, but they set the foundation in here so you have that proximal stability. Which is that foundation that we should never have lost. And the yeah. only reason we lose that is because of the sedentary culture and the sedentary lifestyle. And um, yeah, that, that's why intra-abdominal pressure and, and breathing is such a a big component of those kinds of systems like natural movement, DNS, original strength, they all touch on breathing uh, a lot because it is so important, but also um, more sort of, I don't know, quote unquote, unnatural, I suppose. I don't know. Natural versus unnatural is kind of a whole topic in itself, Mm. but more of those sort of like FRC and um, range of strength and these kinds of things, they all talk through intra-abdominal pressure and breathing as well because gaining mobility is it almost well? It's more probably more so a nervous system thing than it is a structural, um, you know, muscle slash tendon slash joint thing. Obviously, there's going to be both mm. elements of both, but a lot of mobility gains can come from actually just increasing how safe your nervous system feels in a mm. certain range of motion, and that will part of that will be how strong are you in that range of motion and the other part is yeah how well can you breathe in that range of motion and if if you break it down your nervous system cares about literally one thing it's keeping you alive and if it knows that there's a risk of injury going into any particular activity or movement or anything it will find a way to automatically subconsciously or metaphysologically protect you that's what it's there for it's and like we are if everyone kind of find it funny when you say it but like we're all born to do the splits <laughs> unless you have some congenital like defect or something which is unfortunate and wish that didn't happen but you have the the natural right to split so then what happens we like you said we lose, we lose it. it yeah or we even lose the most basic uh, most basic fundamental movement like a squat like if you look at most westerners Ability to squat is pretty shocking. Uh, or people sitting on the floor for an hour like we have and like, like, they can't do that. Yeah, oh, it's just my hips or, you know, my hips are stiff so I can't squat. And it's like, yes, but why are your hips stiff? Because yeah. you don't squat. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's very, very interesting stuff. And um, if you are doing any kind of training, especially strength training or mobility training and your breath and intra-abdominal pressure isn't on your radar, definitely look into that. And It'll make you move so much better. Yeah. And, and it, it, honestly, it feels good. Yeah, it does. It <laughs> really does. It that's just the cool part. feels strong and stable when and, you, and when co- you nail And kind of like what pressure. we touched on, again, with the commonalities across every all the topics today, breathing is literally linked across all of them. And that's one of the reasons why I got drawn to it. You can't find anything that it hasn't got some effect on like if you've got disease states your breathing's changed like most people have diabetes mellitus or like cardiovascular disease their breathing's elevated through the roof because their body's trying to compensate in a way mm. breath gets affected you're running too intensely your breath gets affected you lift you want to lift better breathe yeah it, it just keeps coming back to it and again and again and it's such an once i saw that pattern i was like okay i better understand this it seems fairly important to life yeah quite <laughs> quite um so yeah like we've obviously just discussed a bunch of things around health and performance when it comes to breathing and i'm kind of i'm always interested in this topic of some people say oh you got to sacrifice your health for performance or um sacrifice your performance for health um what do you what do you feel about that difference between health and performance and also um in terms of like breath practices for both like what would be you know some of the most important breath practices for health and for performance i mean you're 
page is called Breath Performance Physio. Um, big plug there. Go check it <laughs> we'll, out. We'll be plugging in it a few times. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what have you experienced in terms of yeah that difference between health and performance, if there is one, and um, whether there's a difference between breathing for health and performance or if that's the same? I think it's a very good question. When you look at what health is, I think that's the fundamental thing. I think if you come back to what our whole concept comes around building a base, if you aren't healthy, your base is more shaky. So you can't perform as well. So you want to make sure that you're getting the health aspect first. I think there's a difference. And the only difference is the intensity. Like not everyone who's healthy can perform a 100 meter sprint. Mm. Sometimes genetically, you just can't, right? Not everyone who's healthy can go become an AFL player or you know, an elite pianist or thing. Because there's just, there's just things that you can't naturally do and you haven't put the time towards. And no matter how much time you put towards, sometimes people are just genetically better. When it comes to performance, I think that, again, you want to build it on the healthy base and you want to make sure that you are doing more targeted stuff. Because for most people to live healthy or healthier lives isn't really that hard. But to be really good at your performance takes probably a bit more craft and a little bit more directed practice. Specialization. Which I think is what mm. the world has known for years anyway. And like we all know that, right? But you want the base to be good. So then how do you start? I think the base comes from all the things that we've mentioned about like just changing the way you do a lot of things. Like you said to me once and it was the easiest thing, like people should sit on the floor. It's free mobility gains. <laughs> and it's like... I distinctly remember like two years ago, I was sitting on the floor and I couldn't do, I couldn't do this. Like I didn't feel comfortable. And like now I can sit here for an hour and a half and like I'll probably get up and feel say slightly stiff afterwards, but I feel comfortable as hell. Like and, I, and the next day you feel so good. Yeah, the stiffness doesn't last. No, like it just becomes a part of, and I'd say that's healthy, right? That, that's something that's healthy, but is that going to help me perform in sport? Not directly, but what I would suggest is that whether it be like the stuff from the Foot Collective just from movement like it's gonna give you the better base to then perform the skill that you want to do with so, probably better longevity as well hey 100 better longevity like if you look outside of sports performance or just um entrepreneur performance or anything because i look at everyone as an athlete i don't use the term athlete as a sports person i think athlete is everyone trying to do anything they want just, just be, be a human well yeah because like you're just trying to be really good at something I think that if you understand the basics first, then we can build on. And that's what I do with a lot of the work when I do it with entrepreneurs or schools is let's, what are the basics? Let's start there and it's through your nose. Let's focus on just periods of time throughout your day where you bring conscious awareness to it so that it becomes automatic. Five minutes, do that say four times a day of just consciously breathing through your nose to really restart some of those chemo or chemical receptors in your carotid artery in your brain going, all right, something's changing down here. We want to change that. And then as you get that habit in place, you then habit stack. Mm. All right, we've got part one. We've started to breathe through our nose. Now what? Are you stiff one way? Let's get the movement going. Like let's open up and let's get you from the mug to the bucket. At the same time, what else do we want to do? Do we need to change? And that's where it becomes very individualistic. Are you someone who just is naturally more stressed? Do I need to help you with box breathing or the heart coherence stuff? Or is it someone that you're pretty good, you need to increase your performance. Let's go for the breath holds or like breath holds and running mm. because that's going to push you. Now, that stuff is fantastic, but it's quite panicky until you learn to be calm under the stress. But you can't learn to be calm under stress 
well unless you know what the foundation is yeah yeah so it's all it all comes down to the context and the individual of course as with everything it depends it depends <laughs> yes um what what we really need to understand is that health is that foundation like you said and you can lay a performance on top of that and there is this again a narrative of like oh you know if you want to be the best, you got to sacrifice X, Y, Z, or you know, um, or some people might think, yeah, I should nasal breathe because it's healthier, but I get better performance when I mouth breathe, so I'm just going to keep mouth breathing. And the gist is, just because you can you can get better performance short term one way, or just because some elite athlete does something to sacrifice their health because they want to perform, doesn't mean that you should be doing it, and doesn't mean that that's the optimal thing to be doing. It's the Yes, you might get better performance in the short term, but it won't. You won't have that longevity. Well, it's probably like a really good example is, and I can never remember how to pronounce his name, Zapacek. I'm useless at remembering all these really fa- fa- like famous runners. But if you read the eighty twenty book by Matt Fitzgerald, you'll see him in there. Effectively, Emil, um, he became really good, like really good at running these distances, and he was doing a lot of hit training and stuff. And there's a few other people in that realm. Now, what was reported is like after about five years sort of stint, starts to break down and starts to get injured a lot because he pushed his body at an intense amount for like a short period of time, which is what performance at the highest level of sport is, right? It's a very short period of your life, but it's very intense. Now, you you might perform really well and that's why bouts of it are really useful and that's why you want to sprinkle it into your training. But if you push and push and push and push and push and push, there's going to be a breaking point I don't care who you are. There is only so much your body's going to go, you know what, I'm done. Now, I don't mean to like sound bad to F45, but it's the same example. If you're doing HIIT training every single day of the week, you're going to get injured. Now, if you have really good load parameters and life isn't so stressful and you've got good relationships... You're not sedentary outside yeah, of your like exercise. There's a lot of factors to it, but for, for the, the general person who just has a you know job, has some kids, they'll get hurt. Why? Well, we've seen it because there's all the data that's already proven it. But it's not because F45 is bad. In fact, there's a great culture. There's a great like bunch of people, same as like Fitstop or whatever. You make all these friends. But the exercise intensity at some point will get you if you don't rest, which most people don't. Mm. So, And you, if you don't know how to organize your body efficiently, which most people don't. That no one has interception. Yeah. You can't really figure that out, can you? No, exactly. So, um, yeah, there's there's... Plenty of plenty of things to talk about in that realm as well. Always. Um, and I, I suppose I was also thinking of chatting to you about sort of how you've integrated breath into your physio practice and, and I guess how your physio practice has evolved uh, over time. And I think I think we should probably keep that to a whole separate episode. Um, we are coming up to oh, over an hour and a half now. Jeez, the time flies when you're fun. Yeah, it's, it's fun. When you're talking about breath, it's so... Oh. It, is, it is probably like that's the hard topic about trying to make breath small to people um you need snippets at a time because it links to everything in some capacity it's just a matter of how deep you go into it and like whenever the time comes when we do that i think people will see like the the physio practice and the way i do it i'm sure there's heaps of people who do it and do it better than i do Mm. but it's you can't simply just say this in two sentences because it's other than i'm gonna make you breathe yeah and that's gonna be part of it but then why and that's the important part because people need to come on the journey and then you've got a book right there. I'd recommend it. Chris Anderson, TED Talks. Mm. All information, and like you and I both believe in, is a story. People like stories more than facts. And they need to understand why they're doing stuff or how it's going to benefit them. But they want to 
be taken on the journey versus just told. Yeah. And yeah, well, that's a big part of how I do my job. For but, sure. Little plug for our, we've got a whole podcast on the power of storytelling actually, which is, a, it's just called bonus podcast. Um, get around it. Ago. Get around it. Cause it, it is, uh, that was done with Mac who's um, started a, company or a business called stories told which is all about telling good stories and, and they changing, are good stories changing yeah, very good the changing the narratives um the, you know the traditional narratives and that's what all of this breath and and foot and all of that stuff is about is changing the story so that you can change your belief so that you can actually change your habits mm. um so we'll wrap it up i just want you to tell us a bit more about the stuff you're up to like your vision with breath performance physio um, you know, on social media and with, you know, in-person seminars, things like that. Um, and then just some of like your favorite resources. We've obviously mentioned a bunch of resources throughout the podcast, mm. but, um, just some things, anything extra or anything that you'd want to reiterate, um, for mm. everyone listening. I suppose, yeah, with breath performance, I, I solely started it because I don't like using my name against things that I do. I'd rather have some name and breath performance was the only thing they came That's up pretty with. Cool name. Yeah. It, it works for me now. Like I've really come to like, like it, um, the the goal is kind of two two streams. Uh, one is like the seminars. One will be online resources and programs for people. The seminars are to small business, small to medium businesses, like from entrepreneurial point of view, and schools. The business is simple: educate people on the very simple stuff of breathing, sleeping, and exercise, and give them specifics. If they have a health and well-being office, it makes my life so much easier, and make them see how important this stuff is to work better and be functioning better. And one of the small businesses that I work have integrated it super well and they've got their own health well-being officer. I've got another chat coming up with them next week, I think. And it's going to be like, it's just so good because they're doing so well. They've gone from a team of like 10 to 50 in a year. Mm. Like they're just progressing super well. It's fantastic. Sweet. And then the school stuff is to start to educate kids um, early and teachers now, like because it's there. And I think it's just one of those things that's too much out there. Just to give them simple stuff start your basic practices and educate kids around how sleep particularly is important and how breathing can help with their anxiety and anxiousness. I think that's that whole stream there pretty much in a nutshell. Mm. Um, with the online stuff, it'll be kind of, you know, similar to you guys have stuff online that people can buy basic programs to help them to start stuff, make them a bit more tailored. If you know, I can write personal programs, but get some nice easy templates and then we can build off it create video resources for people to do something we've spoken about and the same with social media just get the awareness out there more my issue is i'm just lazy on social media <laughs> i'm improving it's just something that i'm now only really going to put probably more time into because i've sort of taken time off other things to start doing more which is great um but again the, the long-term vision is to help as many people understand the fundamentals of breathing because I thoroughly believe it will improve the quality of your life. Love that. <laughs> you're, you're doing for breath what we're doing for feet, basically. Mm. We should, it's we, a foot-breath combo. <laughs> I'm actually really looking forward to collaborating more with mm. it because if you hit both of those, like we've said, it's a really powerful combo and it can make a huge difference to quality of life. And we're, we've started to get into sort of young athletes with our hacking the system mm. stuff, getting them on beams and hackies and, and getting them thinking about balance and having and fun and having like that, fun. That's a big part to it, right? Exactly. You've got to have fun. It's huge. And yeah, we want to get into more of that corporate world as well, because obviously chairs and shoes are, are big in the mm. old corporate world. And um, schools eventually as well. So once we get through the red tape of bare feet in school, um, what, what, that, that it'll come. It'll come. It, it, people it'll will come. understand soon enough. 
I, I agree. So, yeah, looking forward to collaborating more and definitely need to get you back on the podcast because I think we could get really deep on physio and pain science and um, yeah, a bunch of sort of... And making it practical. Like that. And yeah, trying that's, to make all that, that stuff practical. That's probably the biggest thing. Like, I, I like pain science, but I hate how I get taught pain science. Mm. So... It, any like anything i don't do it unless it's practical because yeah. i need to be able to understand it to make it practical and to help other people do it whether that be in like the layman's terms or in a professional has to be practical that's yeah. it so hopefully whenever we get to that we can start we'll even just start you know spitting some ideas for people that with you know the disclaimer this is not medical advice yes. but <laughs> super, again super simple things that people can do yeah that's and that's exactly what we want to get across in the podcast and we did go a little i guess a little deeper into the mechanics and physiology today but it's always good to sort of understand that that level of depth exists and um you know it'll pique some interest for some people and for other people they'll just get the practical tips and that's mm. great as well mm. um before we wrap up any other extra resources or anything that you want to reiterate for people i suppose for people who are like new to the field i would definitely go through james Ness's breathe book yeah. um even his dive book talks about it, breathing mm. with free diving which mm. is really good um, and Patrick McEwen's Oxygen Advantage are the two, I think, most well-written books when it comes to this stuff. There's a book that Patrick wrote before. It says, Shut Your Mouth. It's good, but it's not as easily accessible. For anyone who's looking more from like the professional standpoint, I think the Art of Breath or the Shift Now online resource, which is like a $225 course, it's just a seminar online. It's super useful. I found it to be like nice practical skills. And they look at it, again, from like different perspectives, which I really like. But there's a whole hit load, like list of books that I've brought this from, from DNS to OS to psychology. Um, huge fan on psychology and how what it does with the breathing, from Price to Coddle and like rhinologists because they deal with the nose all the time. So there's a lot of cool information you can find there. But a lot of it comes down to understanding basic physiology. Like once you get that foundation, you don't need to remember all the numbers. The numbers aren't super important. It's more so what are the principles of how things function. And then you can really build on that, build on the foundation. Yeah. And that's how I started. If I understood the physiology and the anatomy, when I linked something, I could come back to my, okay, I know what my base is. And I think that was key. Um, but I can like write out a few lists and we can just upload it as well. Chuck it in the show notes. Yeah, mm. I'd really second that. Um, those two books James, from James Nestor and Patrick McCowan, they were the, probably the most influential on me mm. and have the mo- like the best sort of... Wide-ranging too. Like they tell you everything yeah. like that's going on. If you like, get those two books, you're pretty sorted. Once you figure out breathing and like eating is linked, you're like, oh, wow. Cool. All right. <laughs> um, so yeah, get in touch if you you know get in touch with Tom at Breath Performance Physio. Uh, is that the best place for people to contact you? Yeah, there, there's an email we can chuck that in there yeah. as well. If people don't like, I, I respond to DMs on Instagram pretty well. My email not as good because it's the way it works. <laughs> yeah. Um, so either of those, um, yeah. If you've got questions or if you like the episode, get in touch with either of us. Um, and yeah, we'll we'll have Tom back on the podcast. Uh, probably in the not too distant future, I reckon, because he just lives across the road. Very close. It makes it real easy. <laughs> Actually, Bris- not even across the road. No, it's in the <laughs> apartment next to It takes me about like three minutes to walk from yeah. my door to here, so it's good. Yeah. So thanks for coming on, man. Right. Thank you very much for having me and looking forward to seeing uh, where we go next. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, guys.